The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Thank you. Our next case is Enray KP, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you. Good morning to our Chief Supreme Court Justice and to all Supreme Court Justices assembled. My name is Jacinta Jones. I am the attorney for the appellant at this stage, the Hyde County Department of Social Services. I will also be sharing my time with Mr. Keith Carlson, who is representing the North Carolina Garden at Lightham Program as our positions as it relates to this appeal are aligned. Uh, Mr. Carlson and I do intend to argue uh, two main points. I will begin with the first. Um, Mr. Carlson will argue his point, and we do hope to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal towards the end. To our justices, this matter involves a juvenile um, by the last name. Um, we have determined to utilize the name Kenneth to protect his anonymity. Um, Kenneth was the youngest of four siblings to Angela and Guy Jr. Um, throughout the course of this case, it was determined by paternity testing that was not indeed the biological father of Kenneth. DJ Canny was instead. Um, throughout the course of this case, the respondent mother and um, dealt with a number of issues related to substance abuse, domestic violence, and domestic discord, and overall instability. Uh, during the course of this case, Kenneth was placed at different times with some of his siblings and also alone with his mother. At one point um, towards the middle of the case, a trial home placement began between Kenneth, his siblings, and Mr. Fox and his mother. During the time that he was not in the placement with his parents, with his mother, or with Mr. He was placed in the home of who were his siblings, paternal grandfather and step-grandmother. They were not biologically related to Kenneth, but they had served as court approved caretakers and non-relative kin throughout the course of the case. Ultimately, uh, towards the end of the case, the permanent plans that were set for Kenneth and his parents was custody to a relative, custody to a court-approved caretaker, and reunification. In June of 2020, the court held a hearing under which it was determined that custody would be granted to Ken of custody of Kenneth would be granted to Mr. With um, mother having visitation and mother appealed um, on the appellate level with the court of appeals uh, respondent mother appealed and the court of appeals held that the um, trial court erroneously changed the plan cease reunification efforts and eliminated reunification as a permanent plan under north carolina law the appellate court held in its majority opinion that pursuant to 7B906.2B, that reunification was erroneously eliminated because there were no findings made that reunification was still clearly unsuccessful or inconsistent with the or inconsistent with the juvenile's health or safety. In addition, the Court of Appeals also held that 
um, the findings in the order were insufficient to determine the success or failure towards reunification, such that elim the elimination of reunification efforts was also improper. S7B906.2B does state, Reunification is supposed to be a primary or secondary plan for a juvenile unless one of three circumstances are found. The first one is that reunification is eliminated based on aggravated factors. Um, two, that a permanent plan or the permanent plan is achieved or has been achieved with the entry of the order um, referencing permanency planning, or that uh, reunification would clearly be unsuccessful or inconsistent with the juvenile's health or safety. In this case, um, the permanent plans that were in place were custody to a relative as well as custody to a court-approved caretaker. In this instance, remained legally married to each other throughout the duration of this case. As such, the uh, who are currently the custodians were considered relatives of this juvenile by marriage, although they were not relatives biologically. The North Carolina statutes in our juvenile code um, at the time of the entry of this order had not explicitly listed the definition of relative or limited it to a relative by uh, biology alone. Um, in addition to that, the district court had previously approved the placement of this juvenile as well as his siblings in the home of Guy and on more than one occasion, finding that those homes were appropriate for placement of these juveniles. As such, they were also approved as court-approved caretakers under the circumstances. And so by granting custody to the, uh, the district court did appropriately achieve a permanent plan for this juvenile such that we would argue that reunification was appropriately eliminated as, as a result. Once reunification was eliminated as a permanent plan, then the court was required to review and make specific findings as to the success or failure of reunification in determining whether or not eliminating reunification efforts was appropriate. Um, the statute in 7B906.2D spells out four specific circumstances under which um, the court is supposed to consider the elimination of reunification efforts. One being that the parents have made progress in a reasonable amount of time. Two, the parents have actively engaged in the case plan set by the department, the guardian ad litem. Three, that the parents remain available to the court, the guardian ad litem's office and the department of social services. And four, whether or not the parents are acting in a matter that is inconsistent with the health and safety of the juvenile. The North Carolina Court of Appeals has held that the um, trial court did not make sufficient findings of fact regarding these specific uh, factors. However, in the dissenting opinion and as raised in our new brief as the appellant, we do state that there were significant and there were sufficient findings that embraced the legal question as to whether or not reunification efforts should have been eliminated. Let me ask you a question about that, Counselor, if I may. Yes. Is it your position then that since express findings of fact to uh, cease reunification were not entered, then that by implication, the fact that uh, the permanent plan was achieved would therefore obviate the need for such express findings of fact? 
Yes, um, that is our plan as it related to the elimination of reunification as a permanent plan. Um, because we would state that the would meet the definition of both a caretaker as well as a legal custodian, that a permanent plan was achieved by the entry of the order, thus eliminating the need of the findings about whether or not the efforts towards reunification would be clearly unsuccessful. Uh, typically, such uh, cessation of reunification is done by express findings of fact. How would we set a standard if we follow what you would have us to do, which is to find that by implication with the achievement of the permanent plan, that there's no need for express findings of fact, where would we draw the line as to whether or not implication is sufficient in uh, the dearth of any express findings of fact to cease reunification? Uh, thank you, Your Honor. I do believe that it would fall within the purview of the totality of the circumstances of the order, as well as the findings that were made and the evidence that was presented at trial. Um, although there was not an express um, statement of those things, I do believe that the findings that were made in that order spoke specifically to the issues as to why reunification would clearly be unsuccessful or inconsistent with the juvenile's safety and welfare. In this case, specifically, there were substantial findings made about the uh, continued instability of respondent mother's living arrangements as well as her employment. Um, there were a wealth of findings regarding mother's inconsistency in making herself available for substance abuse uh, screening and treatments, as well as um, just her overall ability within availability within the life of the case. And um, I do believe so that Ms. the findings, Ms. I apologize. Ms. Jones, is it your yes, argument then that if uh, trial court makes sufficient findings for the to, to show generally what kind of condition the parent was in at the time that reunification is ceased, that's sufficient. I mean, you pointed you in, in response to Justice Morgan's question, you pointed to findings about the mother's uh, resident substance abuse issues, things like that. I'm not going to try to repeat them all because you just said them, but. Uh, uh, is it your contention that if the trial court makes findings that permit an adequate understanding of the condition of the parent, that's sufficient to satisfy the requirements of subsection D? Yes, Your Honor, that is um, what my argument would be. And I would reference NRA APW um, that did specifically state that when, um, well, excuse me, NRA APW discussed eliminating reunification of the permanent plan and finding those facts. And however, in NRAE DA, excuse me, where the um, North Carolina Court of Appeals has held that um, the findings do not have to be explicitly stated, but that they must embrace the ultimate question as to whether or not those things can be um, inconsistent. And we do believe that if you have findings that embrace that issue, even if you don't have the explicit language, that, that would be sufficient. Can I just ask you so I make sure I understand the posture this case is in? Um, so this appeal is based on the dissent, and the, the, the dissent agreed with the majority that remand was necessary for findings relating to the question of whether or not there would be any further hearings. And so no matter how we rule on the question of whether the findings were sufficient to just to allow um, 
reunification to no longer be part of the permanent plan, we still have to remand for further findings, right? That's correct, Your Honor. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And, and well, just to follow up on that, um, I understand your position that it's, it's acceptable for the trial court by implication to um, eliminate reunification when there is um, a permanent plan achieved, but, but wouldn't it be the better practice that there be fuller findings um, if reunification is gonna be eliminated? Yes, Your Honor, I can see where there would be a better practice to ensure that sufficient findings are made um, so that it is a very clear and concise version as to why the decision was made to eliminate reunification. However, I do believe that there's not a, a specific amount or a specific uh, type of content that would be required if the totality of the circumstances in the findings of the order are sufficient to support that elimination. Thank you. Thank you. If there are no further questions as it relates to this issue, I will defer to Mr. Carlson. Thank you. Well, may it please the court. My, my name is Keith Carlson from the Wake County Bar, and I, I represent the juvenile Kenneth on behalf of the guardian ad litem. Uh, the trial court's permanency planning order in this case awarded physical and legal custody of Kenneth to the, the parents of Kenneth's mother's husband. They assumed at the beginning of the case that uh, Kenneth was actually the child of her, his mother's husband, but in fact, the paternity test showed that wasn't true. And Kenneth, had, at the time of the hearing, had been placed with the uh, this couple since November 1st, 2019, and had previously been placed with them from May 22nd, 2018 until July 2019. The statute on permanency planning states that the court shall verify that the person receiving custody of the juvenile understands the significant legal significance of the placement and will have adequate resources to care for appropriately for the juvenile. So I want to first discuss whether the trial court verified that the potential custodians had adequate resources to care for Kenneth. Uh, the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals goes beyond what the appellant requested. The brief that Kenneth's mother filed with the Court of Appeals did not present the custodian's resources as an issue on appeal, and her brief filed with this court doesn't address adequate resources either. Kenneth's mother did raise the issue in her brief of whether the custodians understood the legal significance of the placement, and at the end of his discussion, the majority opinion decided that uh, the court had not verified that. But then the opinion adds, or that they would have the adequate resources to care appropriately for the juvenile. And it continues, the order is devoid of any mention of this matter. But in fact, there's ample evidence that the custodians had adequate resources and the trial court's order did make a finding of fact regarding their resources. As, as the dissenting opinion points out, the statute also states the fact that the prospective custodian has provided a stable placement for the juvenile for at least six con consecutive months is evidence that the, uh, the person has adequate resources. And the record shows at the time of the hearing on June 3rd, 2020, the custodians had provided a stable placement for Kenneth for seven months, starting on November 1st, 2019. And one of the custodians provided further evidence their resources when he testified at the hearing that his annual salary was about $56,000, that they did not rely on financial contributions from Kenneth's parents, 
And he also testified they would not have any financial difficulty in continuing care for Kenneth. The trial court then made a finding of fact that uh, one of the custodians has a approximate salary of $56,000 and the custodians are financially able to support the juvenile without substantial assistance from DSS or the parents. And the social worker testified to the hearing that Kenneth had thrived and done well in the care of, custod of the custodians. The trial court found that the Kenneth has received appropriate care, supervision, and treatment. Uh, the record also shows that one of the Kenneth's half-siblings was also living in the custodian's home at the time of the hearing. So it looks like the custodians had adequate resources to care for not only one, but two juveniles. And in fact, earlier in the case, Kenneth and all three of his half-siblings were placed with the custodians for over a year. So given, given the trial court's findings and the evidence supporting them, I respectfully request that this court overrule the Court of Appeals and hold that the trial court verified that the potential custodians had adequate resources to care for, appropriately for Kenneth. If there are no questions, I'll address the issue of whether the trial court verified uh, that the custodians understood the legal significance of the placement. How, how the, court is, uh, the trial court is supposed to verify the custodian's understanding is not clear. The, the statute does not require any specific findings of fact for this verification or any findings at all. The Court of Appeals has held the testimony in the, on this issue from the proposed custodian is not required. And the Court of Appeals has also held that the statute does not require that the proposed custodian demonstrate their understanding to the court. As the dissenting opinion points out, the Court of Appeals has provided a list of three items of evidence sufficient to support a factual finding that the potential guardian understands the legal significance of guardianship. And I believe that would apply also to a custodian. The first uh, item in the, in the Court of Appeals list is uh, there's testimony from the potential guardian or custodian of a desire to take guardianship. And in this case, one of the custodians testified that he and his wife had had conversations with DSS regarding taking custody. And when the court asked him, are you and your wife willing to do that at this time? He replied, yes. And he asked, are you and your wife willing to provide permanence for Kenneth through a custody order? He, he also replied, yes. So this testimony from one of the custodians satisfies the first item on the list from the Court of Appeals. Testimony from the potential custody, uh, custodian that the custodians desire to take custody. The second evidence on the uh, item of evidence is testimony from the social worker that the potential guardian was willing to assume legal guardianship or in this case custody. And in this case, the DSS court report stated that the potential custodians were willing to serve as permanent custodians for the juvenile. The social worker also testified at the hearing and when she was asked, have the custodians expressed a desire to accept legal custody of Kenneth? She testified, yes, they have. So this testimony from the social worker satisfies the second item on the Court of Appeals list testimony from a social worker that the potential custodians were willing to assume legal custody. Well, in terms of talking about assuming the legal custody, it, it was that sufficient in, in your view to establish the legal significance of the guardianship 
uh, by the custodian through uh, Mr. Phillips Sr.'s testimony uh, as the case law governs? Yeah, I, I guess I believe, Your Honor, I believe it is. That's what the Court of Appeals has said is I am evidence sufficient to for uh, evidence sufficient to support a factual finding that that's the case. All right, I'm I'm looking at the fact that both the uh, majority opinion and the uh, dissenting opinion both uh, capsulize uh, the social worker's testimony by quoting the question and the answer, with the question being from uh, the questioner quote and have. Mr. Phillips senior and Mrs. Phillips expressed a desire to accept legal custody of Kenneth. The response of the social worker is yes, they have um, in the quote. Are you saying that that's sufficient to show legal significance uh, of the uh, import of the custodian's rights to the um, child's welfare and well-being in terms of just a statement that they agree to accept legal custody? Yes, Your Honor, I believe that according to the Court of Appeals, that is evidence that they are willing to assume legal custody and that presumably they understand what legal custody is. Even to the extent of saying that that satisfies the legal significance without going further into legal significance as to what is expected under the law if one takes here the guardianship of the child? Well, Your Honor, the uh, the, the court did uh, later on in the order, you know, legal custody is not defined in the, in the juvenile code. The custodian is defined as someone who has been awarded legal custody, but legal custody itself is not defined. Later in the order, the judge does say, after he awards legal custody, that the custodian shall be authorized to consent to any routine or emergency medical, psychological, educational, and remedial services or other evaluations that are deemed appropriate for the juvenile. So it would be my position that the judge has instructed them on what legal custody is. Um, and if they did not understand what legal custody it was uh, previously they will after reading this order. Are you relying on totality of the circumstances as well then just as your colleague from DSS? Uh, yes, your honor. So if, if there are no further questions. Um, I, I would just ask, does it matter that um, the court only heard from one of the custodians. I know the question posed by the court was to you and your wife, but um, do, do we have precedent that says both custodians need to indicate they understand the significance? Uh, your Honor, both both the custodians are expected to understand the legal significance, but both the uh, the husband and the social worker testified as to both both of the custodians. So the husband testified as to his wife, and so did the social worker. So, so if, if there are no further questions, I respectfully request that this court overrule the Court of Appeals and hold that the trial court adequately verified that the potential custodians understood the legal significance of custody. 
Thank you. Thank you, Council. If there are no further questions, that concludes my argument. Thank you, Council. Uh, we'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, Chief Justice Newby and Associate Justices, I am J. Thomas Diepenbrock of the Buncombe County Bar. I represent appellee, respondent mother. As reflected in the Court of Appeals opinion, um, the subject order is an order full of mistakes. Initially, as appellants conceded in the Court of Appeals, the trial court erred because its order waived further reviews without making the findings required by Section 7B906.1N by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence. So that issue is not before this court and means the case will necessarily be remanded to the trial court. Second, the trial court's order failed to verify that the proposed custodians understood the legal significance of the placement. If the order had included such a verification, it would have not been adequately supported by competent evidence. Third, in its order, the trial court erroneously stated that the primary plan of custody with a court-approved caretaker had been achieved through entry of the order. Fourth, the trial court erred when it failed to make findings of fact regarding reunification efforts as required by 906.1D3 and 906.2B and D. Um, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Dyfenbrook, for interrupting so early, but I would like clarification on what you just made. Um, in reviewing your, the Court of Appeals brief, your Court of Appeals brief on page 14, uh, it stated the subject order do, does include the findings that correspond to the requirements of NCGS 7B906.2D, which I believe is one of the statutes you just, just referenced. Could you clarify that for me? I'm a little confused. You're now arguing it because, as I said, the way I'm reading this is page 14 on Court of Appeals brief um, uh, that, that that looked like a concession to me, but please correct my impression if I'm incorrect. Your Honor, I did not raise that issue in the Court of Appeal, and uh, perhaps I'm going um, to stop from bringing it up here. Um, as, I, as I further considered and researched case law, um, it seems clear that 90, the findings required by 906.1 or 90.62D can be viewed in isolation, have to be viewed in relation to the legal standard, the ultimate findings of fact required by 906.1D3 as well as 906.2B. All right. So, um, uh uh, and so what is the significance of this uh, potential concession? Um, the way I'm seeing it, this particular issue is not before us since it was specifically stated on page 14 of that brief that the subject order does include sufficient findings. Well, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I may be a stop from bringing it up here. I just, with further reflection, I, I thought it doesn't, um, they don't sufficiently address findings, don't sufficiently address the ultimate findings of fact required by both 906.1D3 
and 906.2b. Well, and let's, I'm glad you brought that up too. Um, uh, a part, uh, a very important part of 906. Point, let me sure that the 7B906.2B was the, uh, the 2019 edition of the provision in the alternative that uh, re reunification um, shall be primary or secondary unless the court make written findings under this statute. Or, and I'm putting the or in because afterwards there's an or, it says the permanent plan is or has been achieved in accordance with subsection A of this section or the court makes uh, written findings uh, uh, that reunification efforts clearly would be unsuccessful or would be inconsistent with the juvenile's health and safety. So are you arguing at this point that the findings were insufficient with respect to health and safety? And if you are, then how do you reconcile that with the 2019 revision to this particular statute? I'm not sure if he can still hear us or not, but uh, in, his screen went blank on me at the 2553 mark. Oh, dear. I see him now, but it was at 2553 when I lost my transmission with him. Can you all hear me? Got yes, now. Yellow triangle, and I apologize. Um, one thing I always do is plug my computer in in the morning, but today did you need me to repeat the question or did you hear the question before your computer malfunctioned i think i need the last question repeated um i, I did i did had conceded that um point on the 90 point i know six point two d findings in the at the court of appeal and um but on further reflection, I, you know, I would like to address that if I can. Well, and, and before you go to that point, and again, my, my concern is it's not before us since it was conceded at the Court of Appeals. And so, therefore, I'm not sure that the uh, GAL and DSS would be appropriately ready to uh, counter it. But in any event, that being aside, my follow-up question was, uh, given that concession and if that really turned out to be a concession. I would like very much to talk about the 2019 revision to 7B-906.2, which added the provision in the alternative uh, uh, litany language that is the permanent plan is or has been achieved in accordance with subsection A1 of this section. And if you read what's around that, it says um, reunification shall be the primary or secondary plan unless the, the court has written findings or, uh, or and I'm, I'm putting in the or because there's an or after it, the permanent plan has, is, or has been achieved in accordance with subsection A1 of this section, which um, I'd like for you to address that. And then, or the court makes written findings that reunification efforts clearly would be unsuccessful or would be inconsistent with the jingles health and safety. And this, of course, as I said, these are, these three are in the alternative. So given, Assuming that um, the um, uh, the findings corresponding to 7B 906.2D are not before the court, 
Are you arguing then that the problem or concern here is that there was not written findings that were uh, that showed the inconsistency of the juvenile's health and safety? Yes, Your Honor. I would um, I would first um, mention that 906.1 D3 um, requires that in every um, in, in every permanency planning, um, each review and permanency planning here, the trial court shall consider the sample criteria and make written findings regarding those that are relevant, including 906.1 D3, whether efforts to reunite the juvenile with either parent clearly would be unsuccessful or inconsistent with the juvenile's health or safety and need for a safe permanent home within a reasonable period of time. So that uh, statute was not amended uh, consistent with um, the amendment to 906.1 or 9.6 uh, to, to B. Um, and so I, that statute, um, we contend, uh, requires at every hearing that those find that the court make findings um, along those lines as required, and um, and that that would particularly be relevant and important at a at a hearing in which um, custody is being uh, placed with a third party and the case is being closed. So if there were ever a time when that those that finding required by nine hundred six point one. E3 would be relevant and, and necessary. It would be uh, in this particular situation. But, sir, uh, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, but, but, sir, uh, you conceded on page 14 that there was such a finding because it says that it includes the finding that corresponds to 2D. And so that's really where I'm having concern is not that it should be, but whether it was, um, and and it appears from your brief, um, you had stated that those findings were sufficient. So I'm, uh, that's where I'm confused. Uh, I'm not uh, questioning whether they should be, but the fact that it it, you, it appears you admitted that they were. I did it. I did see that in before the court of appeal. I acknowledge that. So in, in response to your question, I wanted to point out that. That 906.1D3 has a requirement that every that every permanency planning review hearing the court make findings whether reunification efforts are clearly unsuccessful or inconsistent with the health or safety of the child, etc. So that has changed, and then as far as the impact of the the to 906.2B, it raises there's an ambiguity in the statute. And the statute says that these findings specified in that statute uh, don't have to be made if the permanent the permanent plan has been achieved. And in this case, um, the Pre-existing primary permanent plan was custody 
with a relative. And so when the when the trial court made its final order, it said the primary permanent plan of custody with a caretaker has been achieved. So that was that was a, a, a mistake. And I think it's more than a clerical mistake because the primary permanent plan uh, that had been set in the, the order after the January 2020 hearing was custody with relative. And so what there part of the ambiguity that, that we raised in, in the brief is that the statute says these findings seems to say that these findings are not required if the primary or the permanent plan has been achieved in accordance with 906.2 A1, which says a the concurrent planning continues until a permanent plan has been achieved. So there's an ambiguity and and um, we believe and contend that the the statute should be construed and interpreted in a way that gives um, purpose to the to the to the, um, the the stated statutory policy and purpose in seven B one hundred that the juvenile code is interpreted to to prevent. Um, the unnecessary separation from juveniles with their parents. Mr. Mr. Diepenbrock, in, in, in looking at uh, 906.1 D3, at least as I understand it, the, the uh, findings generally under 906.1 D are only required if they are, quote, relevant, right? Yes. Uh, does the presence of relevant give us some basis to reconcile uh, 906.1 D and 906.2 B. In other words, if you don't have to make them under 906.2 B, they may not be relevant for purposes of 906.1 D. Well, that that's a that's a possible way to um, reconcile that. But I, as I tried to state earlier, um, I would submit that uh, in a in a at a hearing in which the case is being closed and custody uh, of my child is being awarded to third parties, uh, that that finding would be um, most relevant in that situation. Well, do we do, I mean, are, is it your argument then that 906.1D and 906.2B are simply inconsistent with each other, that they can't be reconciled? The, the other point that I was attempting I'm to sorry, make. Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. I interrupted you. I apologize. No, no I'm, I mean, conceivably, I mean, potentially inconsistent, um, but the part of the part of the ambiguity is within 906.2 B um, in, in itself, uh, because the it's it 906.2 describes the permanent plan being achieved. And in this case, the primary permanent plan was custody with a relative. It says the permanent plan in, in 
B, it doesn't say the primary permanent land, right? That's true. It doesn't. And so, it is, the, is, is it your contention then that the reference to permanent plan in uh, 906.2 B uh, doesn't include one, uh, one, a, a concurrent plan? It's just the primary one? I, I, I believe that's a better um, construction that would be more yeah. consistent with the, the policy of preventing the unnecessary separation of juveniles from their their parents. Um, what happens in these cases is that there's a, um, when it gets to the permanency planning stage, there is a primary permanent plan and there has to be a concurrent plan. And, um, and so primary plan might, it could be a, num a number of things, but at this point, the last time there was a, a primary permanent plan, it was um, guardianship with a relative. And, and we contend that that really wasn't achieved in in this case um, because these folks were um, uh, step you know step parents of step parents. So, um, but um, so I think the the ambiguity is what is the permanent plan? Does it refer to primary permanent plan? Any concurrent plan so that when when um, a court is you know facing a decision, um, does does the statute in fact give the court the opportunity to pick from any number of concurrent plans, and then say, oh, um, the permanent plan has been achieved. There's no need to do anything else. I get to close the case now. I don't have to make any. Um, Findings that reunification efforts would be clearly unsuccessful, et cetera. Help, help me with one more thing while I've got the floor, and then I'll yield to one of my colleagues. But you, you had a discussion with Justice Beringer about whether uh, you had preserved your argument with respect to respect to findings under nine hundred six point two D. Don't want to repeat that, but what is Assuming that you haven't waived that argument, why do you contend that the findings that the trial court made under 906.2, the, the trial court's findings under, lost him again. Mr. Diefenbrock, can you hear us? I don't know if Justice Morgan looked at the, uh, Clock again, but it's off. Yeah, he. I, I paused the timer. Mr. Diepenbrock, can you hear us? Council, are you ready to resume? I am, and I apologize. These things normally don't happen to me, but they would. You know, would happen today, wouldn't it? Um, thank you. You, you may. You may proceed. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Diepenbrock. I think where we were when you had the uh, difficulty that you had, I was requesting you uh, to. Talk to me about why you contend, assuming that you haven't uh, waived the right to argue that the trial court's findings didn't comply with uh, 906.2D, uh, why you disagree with your colleague, Ms. Jones, that uh, the trial court findings were, in fact, adequate. Well, you know, she, she said, in essence, no, they didn't use the exact words of the statute, but if you look at the findings that were actually made, 
they encompass the issues that are contemplated by 906.2D and therefore ought to be held to be sufficient. Why do you disagree with that? Well, there are four um, specific um, findings that 906.2D contemplate. Um, and um, one is absent, um, and that is uh, D2, whether the parent is actively participating in or cooperating with the plan, the department, and the guardian ad litem for the juvenile. And um, there is, um, and, and given the trial court's um, evidentiary findings of fact regarding what respondent mother had done toward her case plan, the, court, the trial court's finding of fact made pursuant to 906.2 D4, that she had been acting in a manner inconsistent with the health or safety of the juvenile appears inconsistent with specific findings of what she had done. And um, regarding the requirements of her case plan, she had completed anger management, parenting, domestic violence classes. She had completed another set of parenting classes. She had received her CNA one certificate completed all the requirements to have her driver's license restored. And after the trial home placement had disrupted, she had lived with her mother in uh, Virginia before moving to her uh, sister's home in Hertford, North Carolina. And she continued to work for her mother cleaning, uh, cleaning houses. So um, there was a lot that she had done. And I think that um, those, um, specific findings really are inconsistent with the more conclusory finding that she'd been acting in a manner inconsistent with the health or safety of her uh, of her son. So, I mean, we do acknowledge that she, uh, she wasn't complying with all of the requests for uh, drug screens. We don't minimize that. And just in general, um, we, Admit that the the findings, the kind of the incomplete findings that that were made, um, somewhat inconsistent with specific findings, don't show that the trial court really made those findings um, with the ultimate findings of fact uh, that are required under both 906.2b and 906.1d3. Thank you. At some well, point. I do want to make sure that I address the verification issues. I want to make sure I, I have time for that, but I'm happy to um, entertain any other questions on the reunification issue. Well, I have one and I'll try to make it brief. Uh, are you saying that the findings of fact are insufficient because they are unsupported by the evidence? Or are you saying that the findings of facts are inadequate because they don't expressly state that reunification should be ceased? I'm saying that um, the one finding that we just discussed is inconsistent with other specific findings that showed what she had done toward her case plan. Um, and and I'm also saying that the those findings don't reflect that the trial court properly um, made them in light of the, the legal standard, which is 
in both 906.2b, uh, 906.1d3, uh, that the trial court is, is um, required to make findings whether reunification efforts are uh, clearly going to be unsuccessful. Uh, but wouldn't that just be surplusage? Uh, if, if a permanent plan has been achieved, then to go back and say, and on top of that, that uh, here are express findings of fact to support that, wouldn't that just be surplusage if the permanent plan or a permanent plan has been adopted? Well, if the, if the trial court does the, its, its job correctly um, and makes the findings that are required, then perhaps you don't get to the point, the trial court doesn't actually get to the point of making a final permanent plan and closing the case if reunification efforts um, still have, have the hope of being successful. Right. I know your time is dwindling. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, so 906.1J um, clearly states that when determining that a juvenile shall be placed in the custody of an individual other than a parent, when appoints a, a guardian, the trial court shall verify that the person receiving custody or being appointed guardian understands legal significance of the placement or appointment um, and will have adequate resources to care for the juvenile. We're not contesting the trial court's verification that the proposed custodians have adequate resources, but we do contend the trial court did not verify the proposed custodians understood the legal significance of the placement. In their briefs, appellants state that the trial court made a finding regarding the proposed custodian's understanding of the legal significance of the placement. That's at pages 15 and 16. For the trial court's order is completely silent regarding any verification that the proposed guard custodians understood the legal significance of the placement. So the order must be vacated for this additional reason. But further, even if the court order had included a finding regarding such verification, the finding would not have been supported by competent evidence. Both appellants and the dissent are proposing a rule that would eviscerate the statutory requirement that a trial court verify that a proposed custodian understands the legal significance of the placement and instead replace it with a requirement that the trial court merely verify that the proposed custodian is willing to receive the placement. This understanding, misunderstanding of the law appears to be based on a misreading of the Court of Appeals opinion in JDMJ. In that case, the court held, the Court of Appeal held that the trial court heard no evidence from which it could verify that the proposed custodians understood the legal significance of assuming custody when neither of the custodians testified, no testimony was offered by DSS that the custodians were aware of the legal significance of assuming custody, and they did not sign a guardianship agreement acknowledging their understanding of the legal relationship. The opinion in JDMJ includes language relied on by appellants and the dissent, which really should be considered dicta, um, and that, um, 
I'm not going to read it, but that was, uh, maybe I should read it. Evidence of sufficient to support a factual finding that a potential guardian um, um, understands the legal significance of the guardianship can include inter alia potential of a potential guardian of a desire to take guardianship, the signing of a guardianship agreement, acknowledging the legal relationship and testimony from a social worker, the potential guardian is willing to assume legal guardianship. This is citing EM um, 249NC44. But in EM, um, while that opinion includes the language um, cited in CDMJ, what the Court of Appeals actually held was that there was no evidence in the record to support the trial court's finding that either of the custodians understood the legal significance of the placement, or the husband of the custodial couple did not testify, and there was no evidence to indicate that he understood the legal significance of taking custody, and that while the wife did testify, she never testified regarding her understanding of the legal relationship, and the DSS report contained no statement that either of the proposed guardians understood the legal significance of the placement. Um, I mean, the, that language um, that is relied on by appellants and the dissent that I just read, um, it's, it cites to NRALM. Um, in that case, the um, foster father and one of the two proposed guardians testified he was willing to accept guardianship. The social worker so testified and the husband executed a form in which he stated that he acknowledged um, that he was assuming responsibility for the juvenile without the assistance of DSS. And the Court of Appeals, in that opinion, held the trial court perform the required verification as to the foster father, but held there was insufficient evidence that the foster mother understood and accepted the responsibility of guardianship where she did not testify um, and she did not um, sign a guardianship form. So the um, again, I want to I want to restate that there was no finding um, in the trial court uh, that the trial court verified the uh, that the, the proposed custodians understood the legal significance of the, the placement. I may be out of time. So I, I, we would ask that um, the court um, vacate the trial court's order and find um, the, the one issue that, that waiving further reviews is, um, is has been conceded that the case is going to have to be sent back and uh, ask the court to, to hold that uh, the trial court did not verify, properly verify that the um, custodians understood the legal significance of their placement, as well as the, the uh, as well as holding that the court failed to make proper findings regarding uh, 
whether reunification efforts would be clearly unsuccessful or inconsistent with the health safety of the child. Thank you, Council. I believe I've given you uh, the time that you lost on your uh, the first time we lost contact. So, okay. thank you for your argument. We'll now hear any rebuttal. Your Honor, as it stands in relation to the rebuttal issue, I know that there's been um, a significant amount of discussion regarding the interplay between 906.2B and 906.1D. Um, and I would just like to bring out, as it has been mentioned previously by one of our honored justices, the fact that the findings in 906.1D are supposed to be addressed if they are considered to be relevant to the issue at hand at the permanency planning hearing. Um, we would submit at this time, Your Honor, that the findings that were made um, throughout the length of the order address a number of these issues, although there may not have been an explicit written finding of these facts. Um, the facts that surrounded this order related to the progress or lack thereof of both the respondent parents were consistent to bring the court to a legal conclusion about whether or not reunifi reunification efforts would be futile or clearly unsuccessful, just as they were um, sufficient to bring the court to the ultimate conclusions that the four factors that were required under 906.2D um, have been found by the district court. As it relates to the verification issues, um, Mr. Diepenbrock brought out the evidence that was presented in NRAY LM, and it is true that the court did hold that there was not a sufficient verification for the foster mother in that case when she did not sign a guardianship form and she did not testify. However, in this case, Your Honor, there has there was no evidence that was presented to um, state that there was any question that the foster mother or that Miss had a different position from her husband as it related to being willing to assume custody and the legal significance of custody for them. Uh, I do agree with Mr. Diepenbrock that I believe that some of the issues that has led to the um, varying opinions in this case are the ambiguity that are, call, are caused by uh, 7B906.2A1 and 906.2B. Uh, that is a, a very major issue as it relates to the question of A1 mentioning concurrent permanent plan being required until a permanent plan is achieved. And then 906.2B saying that uh, reunification can be eliminated without specific findings if the permanent plan is achieved. And we would bring out in this case, although it may not be a very um, common issue in this case specifically, the court had moved forward with three separate permanent plans. So at the time that this hearing uh, took place, there were indeed a primary, secondary, and tertiary, if we would like to um, couch it in that language, permanent plan for this juvenile. And the evidence that has been presented in the cases as well as in the briefs shows that Mr. would have qualified as the achievement of one of the three permanent plans, either as being considered a, a relative by marriage or as a court-approved caretaker. And once that permanent plan was achieved under 906.2A1, 
then the requirement regarding the findings to eliminate reunification as a plan under 906.2b um, was appropriately eliminated as well. I would defer to Mr. Carlson if he has anything he would like to add. The only thing I, I would like to add is that there have been a number of cases dealing with the uh, how the court should verify the legal significance of the uh, uh, the understanding of the custodians of the legal significance of the placement. And I think it's fair to say that we could use a clearer standard of how the trial court should should act. That, that that's all I would add. All right. Well, thank you uh, to everyone, uh, Madam Clerk. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess for 45 minutes. God save the state and this honorable court.